you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning of enchanters. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe in his feet, at his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. For our thought today, I would like to use as a title, The God Who Judges. The God Who Judges. So today we look at another psalm of David. You see, within the book of Psalms, there are different types of psalms which are used. Today's psalm is referred to as an imprecatory psalm. That is to bring imprecation or to speak a curse or judgment against a person. Looking into the formula of these types of imprecatory psalms, they usually include some general description of the wickedness of the enemies. They begin by bringing up charges that prove that they are truly evil people. While the author at times seems to have done evil things against they have done evil things against them, the main focus usually is that their wickedness is evil against God, not just against the author. This is also not just seen as a one-time act, but it seems like the wicked continue in a life of evil, and it's their whole expression. Their whole existence is to commit evil against God and his people. Their unjust ways ruin the lives of all those who are in their path. For an example of this, you can look at Psalms 109, verses 1 through 3. It'll kind of give you that description. Even there, it says, For the wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. You see, along with these type of charges that are given against the wicked, the psalmist would also offer a prayer to the Lord calling for God to hear their cry and to judge the evil that is on earth. This usually comes in the form of a request where the destruction that has been issued out by the wicked would be repaid to the wicked, but even to a greater and more eternal extent, where they have no capacity to carry out their wickedness anymore. This is a call for God to deal justly with the wicked, but at the same time for God to defend his people. Finally, they will come to an end. There usually is a token of hope 
for that the Lord would come to the defense of his people, that the Lord would deal with all the evil in the world and bring wickedness to its end. And this would serve as a hope for the righteousness, for the righteous and encouragement to take to not take vengeance into our own hands, that the Lord will be the one who takes a vengeance. We don't have to do it for ourselves. You see, although a small percentage of the Psalms are given to this imprecatory style, I do believe that there is still a message in them for us, just as it was for the Israelites. You see, the dark tunnel of poetic language serves as a warning to those who rebel against him. But a light at the end of the tunnel serves at a hope for those who are righteous in him. The key point of our passage, as well as many of the imprecatory psalms, is this. God will justify, justly judge the wicked and the righteous will rejoice. God will justly judge the wicked and the righteous will rejoice. We will use the breakdown given earlier to kind of walk through our passage today. We will look at the charge of injustice, the prayer for justice and the hope for judgment. I will repeat those points to us as we go out. But first, we want to look at the charges of injustice. David in the psalm starts out with two rhetorical questions aimed at those who are in particularly positions of power, those who are in authority, especially those who have power to judge and to speak authoritatively over the people. He asks these two questions. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Or if you one of your translations may say, do you decree what is right, you who are silent? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? His questions seem to take aim at whether or not people are acting justly towards God's people. With their ability to speak, do they sit in silence like false gods? Or do they speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves? This is a common characteristic of false gods. They are exalted in their power. They are giving glory and honor. But when it comes to defending their people, they do not act, nor do they speak. Psalms 115.5 points to the same fact. It says they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. If you know the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, when the people are calling down for their false gods to come and to show some sign, they get no answer. But Elijah calls upon the Lord God Almighty and fire consumes the entire altar. See, it's not certain here in our psalm today if it's a specific person or group that David is pointing to. You see, not sure if this line of charges and accusations are pointed to Solomon or the enemies that are around him. But what is clear, though, is the answer to the questions that he asked them. Do they speak up for the poor and powerless? Do they judge rightly? Well, the answer is a profound no. Why would they not speak up for those who are in need? Why would they not act justly? Because at their very core, they are wicked. Verse two, it says, in your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hand deals out violence on all the earth. 
all they desire to do is wrong. Their entire existence is to seek havoc. See how this is in direct parallel to the true God Almighty, the true God who is over the universe. Genesis 1, we look and we see a God who is not silent, but speaks everything into existence. Psalms 119 verse 68 tells us that we do not serve a God who is evil, but it says that he is good and he does good. This is the God who has looked upon man that he has created and called it very good. But yet his very good creation are the very ones that bring calamity and destruction upon the entire earth. The sons of men do not judge righteously because they have fled from their just and righteous father. Verse three, it tells us that very fact. It says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This is what is in their hearts from the beginning. From their conception, they were people who were wicked and went astray. Their desires were to do evil, to disobey God. It is like a snake's venom that is infecting the hearts of all of mankind. Their sin and wickedness, it runs rampant and there is no desire to hear the cure for their infection. You see, saints, I'm extremely afraid of snakes. And if you're honest, I know some of y'all in here too, so don't, don't play. <laughs> not because of their scaly skin, not because they can come out of nowhere, but it's because of their bite. One bite from a venomous serpent can send you to the hospital. One bite can send infection throughout your entire body, causing limbs to be cut off or even at its worst, causing death. Yet what I'm told about snakes and these slithering reptiles is that they are actually scared of people. They want to get away from us. They want to flee from us. So they want to flee so they cannot be handled by the one that is actually has more power than them. And this is the way of the wicked, fleeing from the one who actually has power over them, who has power to save them or even to destroy them. They want to flee away even at birth, yet they strike the heel to infect its vicious venom on anyone in its reach. And there is no charming them. There is no speaking to them. Verses four through five says their ears are stopped, so they do not hear the charmers. These wicked people, they do not speak righteously. They're wicked. Do not, they do not judge rightly. Their hearts are evil and their ears are deaf to the instructions of the Lord of how to be made righteous as he is. Before we're too consumed, we're trying to pinpoint who the wicked people are around us. I think, saints, we have to be honest and point the finger at us because we know that we, too, were these wicked people. We, too, had evil hearts set against God. We, too, had ears deaf, deaf to the word of God. And when the Lord searched our hearts, he came back finding in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
So before we point the finger of blame at others at being wicked, recognize that you too once followed after the sons of disobedience and the prince of the power of the air. We joined in with the wicked in their rebellious cry to the Lord. Satan's venom, sin's venom had infected us all. We were born into sin. And in in iniquity, we did live our lives. So as we think about the testimonies of our life, as we think about how we share our stories of God's salvation with others, let us remember this central fact. The danger here is that we can begin to think that we weren't too bad a people. We weren't that bad off. Our hearts just needed a little cleaning up. We can begin to think that we were just this close and the Lord had to bring us the rest of the way. You see, the only way for us to be made righteous is that the Lord had to cut out our heart of flesh and give us a clean heart. The prayer is this, to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It is our God who is able to touch the deaf ears We see this in Mark chapter seven as Jesus comes to the deaf man. He puts his hands on his ears and he is able to be made to hear. And they will proclaim throughout all the area that he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It is Christ who gives us these new hearts. It is Christ who causes us to hear the word and it's Christ who permits us to speak his word. So let this also be an encouragement to those, even with children. I know at times as you look at the lives of your own children, it seems like they are fleeing away from the instruction of the Lord, that their hearts are seemingly infected with wickedness. It seems like their ears are clawed and they do not want to hear the instruction of the Lord. But just know, just as the Lord was able to give you a clean heart, just as the Lord was able to unstop your deaf ears, he can do the same for your very children. Because this is the God that we serve. Now, I think we can pray that the Lord will save our children, even at an early age because we know that he can. But as New Testament believers, we know that we should pray in this way for our enemies too. Matthew chapter 5, 44 tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. So we think about those who would be the wicked enemies. The call for us as New Testament believers is to pray for our enemies. Whether it's the racist, the Democrat, the Republican, the ISIS leader, the abortionist, the white supremacist, whoever that may be, the call for us is to pray for our enemies. Yes, it can be said that those who do such thing are exactly who our passage is talking about. But remember, though, we share the same DNA. We come from the same sinful father of Adam. Our hearts were given to sin just as much as their hearts were. What they need at first is not just an evil prayer from God's people, but they need God's grace 
just as much as we needed God's grace. The same grace we need, they need as well. So just like someone prayed for you, whether it was your mother, grandmother, father, sister, brother, just like someone prayed for you while you were in your sins, pray for others while they are in theirs. This is the call for us. The Lord will give them clean hearts and then stop their ears and open their eyes to behold the wonderful mystery of his word. But I hear your questions and confusion, though. This looks and sounds a whole lot different than the prayer that David gives here for the wicked. It sounds a lot different. So as we go to our second point, the prayer of justice, verses six through nine. See, what David prays for the wicked really falls into kind of two categories. He prays that the wicked would be rendered powerless and that they would be destroyed. First, that their power would be taken away. Their ability to spread wickedness and would be stripped from them. He prays that their teeth would be broken, that their fangs would be torn out, that their arrows would be blunted as they bend their bows. You see, without their fangs, without their bows, they cannot pass on their venom. They cannot give any more hurt or harm. Without their teeth, they cannot devour their prey. For David, his prayer against the wicked is not content with just having them made, made powerless, though. He takes it a step further and prays that they are destroyed themselves. He prays that they would vanish like the running water. He says that they would dissolve like snails into slime and they would not be able to see the sun. This is a very strong language coming here from David being used. But what he prays is right. And his request comes with the assurance that God will bring this type of justice swiftly. It will come quickly. Verse nine, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Imagine how much time it takes as you set a pot of water on the stove just as quick as it takes the fire to hit the bottom of your pot, just as quickly the justice of the Lord is coming on the wicked. You see, considering this prayer and the charges against the wicked, I believe there are three observations that will be helpful for us to walk through. One is that David prays this in general terms. He's not specifically praying for someone. He uses kind of general terms. He talks generally about the wicked. So even as we pray, I think it's wise for us to discern who we pray these prayers for. At every sight of wickedness that you see from someone doesn't mean that you should go calling down hellfire and brimstone. At every sight of evil, it does not call for you to call upon damnation upon that person. But it is wise to generally pray that God would deal with the wickedness that we see on the earth. You see, many of us would be praying if we were back in the early church days. If we were like that, we'll be praying against Paul. We will be those who will be calling down hellfire and brimstone upon Paul as he's ravaging and killing the early church. But rather, maybe the better prayer for us to start with is not the prayer of destruction. While it is right that we pray for God to be just, maybe we should pray for their salvation first. 
You see, this prayer is for the absolute end of wickedness. That's the second observation. It's for the absolute end of wickedness. You see, my friends, you think you've seen a lot of evil, but we have not even seen the tip of all the wickedness that is in the world. There's been ages and generations of sinfulness and wickedness, which we have not come to know and, and will never know. But what David is praying here is not just for specific times and specific people, but he's calling for the absolute end of all wickedness. And we can see that in Christ, this has happened. In Christ, this will happen. You see, the power of sin and the wicked can be resisted in Christ. That in Christ, sin can lose its power, meaning that it can no longer have any more power over you. That's what James 4 tells us. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us our father will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with temptation, he is always ready to provide the way of escape. If you want to see the wickedness of this world be made powerless, start resisting sin in your own life. In Christ, we can resist this sin and we can see the power of sin being taken off of our shoulders. You see, the sin, the third aspect is that the sin of this world will bring death. But in Christ, the wickedness and sin will be wiped away in all of its effects. It will, this power of death will not enter into the new heavens, into the new earth. We are assured this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. So what should we do with this prayer? Well, I think a good way for us to apply this is to pray for those in authority over us. That they would reflect the justice of God. Romans 13, 3 tells us that these governments that are over us were instituted by God. But yet we know that although that they're instituted by God, they're not always as just as they should be. You see, authority, as it says in Romans 13, 3, it should not be a terror to doing good. They should not be a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Those who are not just in their deeds and righteous in their character should be removed from power. They should be removed from authority. They should not be lording it over us if they're going to be wicked with their power and wicked in their authority. So I believe we should pray that those in authority over us would reflect the righteous character and justice of God. And those who do not, that the Lord will providentially move them out. You see, our government is not immune to injustice, my friends. 
And we must be aware of that or else we'll stop praying for them and stop looking out for them and calling for God to help them reflect his character. I think another way we can pray is that we can pray that those in authority over us will be swift to bring justice. Just a couple weeks ago, T.O. was able to give us devotion from Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11. It says, because of the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully over to do evil. And he makes a great quote in that devotion. He says, justice, justice delayed is justice denied. I think a great prayer is that those who are in authority in this place of power will be quick and swift to bring justice. And then there are for you in here who have not followed Christ, who would not consider yourself a Christian. The call for you, the application for you is to repent. See the justice that God is at hand. You cannot live a life of wickedness all you want to because just as fast as the heat rises to the pot, his justice is coming for you. So repent, turn to the Lord, confess your sins to him. Live for Christ because you will find that you will find justice in Christ. Now you will either see his justice when he returns or you can see yourself justified in Christ by confessing your sins to him. And just as quickly as the heat rises to the pot, if you confess your sins and believe in Christ, you too can be made just in Christ. So my call to you is to turn to the Lord. Turn from your wicked ways and trust in him that he will give you a clean heart, that he will open up your ears to hear his instruction, that your ears may no longer be deaf. You see, what can clearly be deduced if you reject the call to live justly now, you will be rejected at his judgment. Yet if you rejoice in the call to live justly now in Christ, you will rejoice at his judgment. That brings us to our third point, the hope of his judgment. Verses nine, verses 10 through 11. It says the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. If you're astute to some of the language that's being used here in regards to the imprecatory Psalms, you will notice that some of the same language is used even in our court of law. You see, there is this prosecution. There is these charges levied against the wicked. There's evidence given of their wickedness. And then as the evidence is revealed, there is a cry to the judge himself to be just, to bring justice upon their evil. And that just punishment is offered up against those who have committed these crimes against the Lord and his people. There's an assurance of vengeance that will be distributed. If we all have in some way contributed into the wickedness of the sin, though, 
it will make sense that we would all be charged for the wickedness of sin. You see, our evidence will clearly present itself. We are all sinful. We've all sinned, every man, woman, boy, and child. And God's law stipulates that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for foot. Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death. We should get what is justly coming to us. But when we come to our last verse, there's this sign of hope or even mercy that's been offered to us. Notice these things. We find that the people, they're not called wicked there, but they're called righteous. We find that they're not weeping at the judgment, but they are rejoicing. We find that they are not receiving wrath, but a reward. How can this be? This cannot be just. How can he pour out the judgment of all mankind, yet spare some? If all were wicked, how can this be? Well, it's because the price that was to be paid has been covered by another. If you know your Bible, you would have picked up that I did not finish quoting all of Romans 6.23. He says, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In who? Not us, but in Christ Jesus. It was Jesus that lived righteous but paid the price for the wicked. It was Jesus that wept in the garden in the sweat drops of his own blood that we may rejoice in the blood of the wicked. It was Jesus that drank the cup of God's wrath upon an old rugged cross that we may receive the reward of eternal life with God forever. Jesus died paying the price for all the sins of the world. But God raised him to life again to prove that his life is pure. His life is righteous. And in him, we can be justified as if we were never wicked before. We are made just in Christ alone. Now it is by the blood of the lamb that we may be washed as white as snow. So now, when we stand before the judgment throne of God, the only defense we need to stand before him completely is to say, because Jesus died, my soul to save. So to the saints, notice, the blood of the wicked is at our feet, though. It's not on our hands. Over and over, the Lord assures us that he will bring vengeance. We do not have to take vengeance into our own hands. So no more crusades for us, no more holy wars, for it's the Lord who says, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 29, that vengeance is mine and their doom will come swiftly. Romans 12, 19 says, avenge not yourselves. Why? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 6 says the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. We do not have to take up vengeance in our hands because we know that his justice, although it seems to tarry to us, it does not tarry. And his justice is coming swiftly. 
And when we see his justice come, when we see the man of God, the son of God come from heavens, descending down to the earth with the sword in his mouth and the blood of his victors upon his robe, we will say with all of mankind, surely there is a God who judges on earth. So the call for you, saints, is to wait on that judge. He's coming. He's coming soon. Let us pray. Lord, we just pause right now to say thank you. Thank you. Because I am, we, we see the wickedness of our own hearts. How if judged by our own standards, we will be found condemned. Judged rightly to an eternal hell. A price for our sin, which we could not pay. But then you send your son. Not to condemn the world, but that the world through him may be saved. And in Christ, we too can be saved. So I pray for us who are in this room. Those who are saved, that we will wait for the judge who returns. Knowing that he comes quickly and just with him, his justice will as well. For those who do not know you, I pray that today that they will confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, knowing that tomorrow is not promised to them. Today, while the day is called today, we pray that they will confess that you are Lord and judge over all. They are sinners, but you can make us righteous. We pray all this in the confidence of knowing that we have assurance in our Savior and that he will surely do it. So we ask all these things in your daughter's son Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn today, an invitation will come from number 134. Jesus paid it all.